I want to send a quick shout out to my man, Tim Hutchings, a.k.a. Hutch. He has a podcast called the EMS Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcast. I want to tell you, Tim, that I adore who you are, sir. You are one of the toughest motherfuckers I've ever seen in my life. For those of you who may not be familiar with this podcast, he's an EMS worker from uh, from upstate New York. I don't know what city he's living in right now, but he's a fellow cinephile like myself. We've bonded over the ridiculousness of the Academy Awards for quite some time. And uh, I know you're out there somewhere helping people, doing good things. Thank you for what you do. God bless you. And good luck. My name is Eli. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. So, this is a continuation of my top 10 of the top scenes from films of this past decade. Yeah, let's just get right into it. I don't really have much more to say. Number five, 22 Jump Street from 2012. Can you as a moviegoer recall the time where you laughed the hardest in a movie theater? I mean, if you don't go to the movies that often, then I'm pretty sure that's an easy question. But when you work at a movie theater for as long as I did, and you get to see movies for free, and when you have friends who work for a theater chain that get you in the movies for free, this can be a very difficult question, given that there's so many comedies that you end up seeing in the span of a year. For me, there were three times. One was when Mike Tyson popped up in the middle of nowhere in The Hangover singing Phil Collins and then he ended up punching Zach Galifianakis to unconsciousness. Two was the Scorched Earth monologue by Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder, which may be the funniest thing that's ever happened to me in a movie theater. I think I missed the next scene. I was just so continuously laughing at that given that it was Tom Cruise giving that monologue. And then there's this scene in 22 Jump Street which is the very best comedic scene of any movie I've seen in this decade. I mean, comedy, like, it's, it's such a science. You know what I mean? You can throw the joke out there, and you can hope that the audience catches on to what's happening, and, like, maybe it'll be funny. But honest to God, gut-busting, hiccup-inducing comedic scenes are all about the setup. And in this movie, the setup is funny enough, right? Everybody in this movie, uh, every cop in this movie that works in the precinct where Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum's characters work, they're so happy for Jonah Hill's character, Schmidt, because he's had actual sex with a human woman, which I guess nobody would ever think that would happen or something. One of us got laid last night. Schmidt? Shh. Don't wake up my dick. Flew in on the red eye, hasn't gotten a wink of sleep. Damn. We're talking missionary. We're talking missionary. We're talking when I'm on top and she's on her back. The captain is so engaged in this locker room banter that he even has the nerve to start sipping a cup of tea while hearing the banter between the police officers before offering him some dap. 
offering Schmidt dap, congratulating him on his sexual conquest. I will give you some dap, Schmidt. Come on, give me some. Come on, give me some. Come on. Cut to Schmidt meeting that hookup's new parents. Well, new parents. Her parents, the, the hookup's parents. Her father being that of the captain himself. Because he met her when he was undercover, she has no idea what his real name is. And all of this is funny enough. All of this is well and good, but what makes this scene completely and utterly over the top is when Schmidt's partner, Janko, is shown a picture of the captain's daughter. And the audience gets to see the gears turning very slowly between all the characters involved. And then this shit happens. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! <laughs> oh, shit! No! That is not happening right now! No! Hey, oh, he's fucking the captain's daughter! Yo! Now, add all of this, add all of the low-key sight gags, and... The expertly done close-ups of Ice Cube being that angry dad, and then show Jonah Hill being the terrified new boyfriend, and you have a scene that's absolutely positively unmatched, in my opinion, to anything that's been released in the past 10 years. There's no comedy at all that even comes close. I challenge people to find me something that is set up this expertly. <laughs> For me personally, if I see something this awesome in a film, I usually see that film again, purposefully being more aware of how well the audience reacts to it. There are plenty of films that I thought had awesome moments that didn't resonate as well the second time. And that happens all the time. But not this here. I saw 22 Jump Street three times in the theaters, and every single time, the audience was consistently collectively buckled over just like it was when I saw it the first time. Number four, Joker, 2019. <laughs> Forgive me for going off on a rant here, but I'm incapable of talking about the greatness of this next scene without getting annoyed. One thing that's very clear about this Joker movie is the not too subtle references to Taxi Driver. The director, Todd Phillips, has flat out said that Taxi Driver was a direct influence. And if you've seen Taxi Driver, then you would understand that in that movie, the press labeled Travis Bickle, the lead character of Taxi Driver, as a heroic vigilante. He wasn't celebrated, but he wasn't put in jail for the actions that he did. He went free for killing three dudes. I say this because if Taxi Driver is your main artistic inspiration for making a film like this, then there was only one way to have this movie end. The setup is fucking perfect. Arthur Fleck has just killed the talk show host on national television. He is riding through a rioting Gotham City. He's looking out the window of the cop car with a shot that had to have been. I mean, had to have been an homage to Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Had to have been. Then suddenly there's a car crash and Arthur is 
pulled from the car and he's placed on the hood of it and he's unconscious, right? While he's unconscious, they then cut to the alleyway where Bruce Wayne's parents are killed and they have a close up on little Bruce Wayne's face. And in what had to have been an implication of the Joker and Batman essentially being born at the same time, they cut to Arthur waking up on the roof of this car. He stands up and he's surrounded by an adoring public cheering him loudly. And noticeably, he then does a victory dance on top of the hood of this car. A dance that strongly resembled the dance he did in the bathroom earlier in this movie after he killed his first three dudes. Um, He killed them in that subway and then ran to the bathroom. And in this particular scene, his nose is bleeding from the car crash. He uses the blood from his own nose to make the Joker smile. He then turns to a different section of the audience, a bigger section, and he stands on the roof of the car with his hands raised triumphantly. The metamorphosis is complete. He is officially the Joker. He is no longer Arthur Fleck. The camera pans out to show just how many motherfuckers have now embraced him as, uh, I guess, perhaps a anarchistic savior of Gotham City. Slow motion, the music swells, they cut to black. And at this point in the film, All you had to do was roll the credits. Had they simply done that, I believe you have one of the best endings to a film of the past 30 years. This film, like Taxi Driver, was never designed to end on a happy note. It was never designed to leave the audience in suspense as to what was going to happen next. It was never ever designed to tell the audience that the whole thing may have been made up Uh, made up in his mind i mean this was a movie that like taxi driver like taxi driver was telling you that this society can make a mentally ill person like arthur fleck into a fucking monster that's the moral of the story i know That's a very grim ending. And I know that's very depressing to think about. And it makes the audience get in their feelings a little bit about the way the world works and the current state of politics and all that. And you leave the theater very down. But hey, sometimes that's the fucking point. And during the first part of the scene, I mean, you (laughs) during the first part of the scene, you have white room by cream playing in the background as if Phillips and and everybody involved in this production weren't trying to be subtle enough about what they wanted you to feel. And instead of getting the ending with the most impact, we get this five minute bullshit psychiatric evaluation of Arthur Fleck, which for no reason hints at him being locked up in a mental facility, and making up everything that we've seen on the screen so far. And then, for some reason, this movie ends with him being chased around by orderlies, and 
I guess they're implying that he killed the psychiatrist that's interviewing him supposedly for no other reason than her just being there at the wrong time. Oh, God. You know what? And that's another thing. This movie goes out of its way to tell you that everybody that the Joker has killed up to this point is somebody who's wronged him. There's a three dudes in the subway, the dude that fired him from his job, his mom, and the talk show host. But now they want you to believe that he's just randomly killing innocent psychiatrists at random because reasons? I mean, I know he's the Joker, and I know that's what he does in Batman the Animated Series and all the other iterations of this character, but you haven't given that. This is not that. This is a different history. I have the second to last scene of this movie, this high ranked, and it could have been ranked higher if not for the last five minutes of this movie. That's how unbelievably great that scene is. I don't know how many times I've seen that movie, and every time I see it, it just gives me an odd sense of joy. You know what I mean? Like joy is the right word to use there. It's the only moment of triumph that this guy has in the entire film and the film itself builds it up to be celebrated i mean that's bizarre within itself but that's how audiences tend to digest things they just had to cut the credits why the fuck didn't they just cut it to the damn credits number three wolf of wall street 2013 one of the movies that I've had more debates about just by far, oh man, like more than mostly any other movie that I can think of, like more shouting matches with other film snobby, cenotile, cinephile type motherfuckers that usually end up with me respecting their opinions on film a lot less, to be honest with you. Vice versa, probably, but who cares, right? Why? Why all the debating? Well... If I haven't made it abundantly clear by this point in this show with all these episodes, I really detest film snobs. And a lot of people in this city, in particularly film snobs who herald Martin Scorsese as a deity, often tend to do the film snobby thing when discussing his resume. Often, a discussion about a filmmaker and his resume will include a lengthy discussion about what their best film is, blah, 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 blah. And because film snobs are virtually unable to acknowledge anything recent as a definitive work of a legendary filmmaker like Martin Scorsese, I tend to get really annoyed when I tell them that aside from Taxi Driver and Goodfellas, The Wolf of Wall Street is the best Martin Scorsese film ever made. It is the bronze medal. It is better than Raging Bull, better than Aviator, better than Casino, better than The Departed. Film snobs have a hard time hearing that. I mean, look, Martin Scorsese films do have a certain style to them that nobody else can duplicate. It's a combination of retro rock tracks and multiple narrations and quick cuts, like a lot of stuff that I don't see anybody really try and duplicate. You see it in Goodfellas, you see it in Casino, and you see it here. And in my opinion, that method of framing things goes so much better 
showing the egregious, superficial, materialistic, and hedonistic lifestyle of early days Wall Street than it does showing the brutal and ultimately sad life of the gangsters that he has portrayed in the past. Oh yeah, and also The Wolf of Wall Street is the greatest performance by Leonardo DiCaprio ever. I hereby stand firm in saying that not only is this his best performance, it's not even fucking close. And I know that considering the resume that this man has, that's saying a whole lot, but trust me, it is. The movie he actually won the Oscar for, The Revenant, that's not even in his top five, okay? That's how deep his resume goes. And up until this movie, I never really knew he could make me laugh. Like his career seems to be built on not making any of us laugh considering the types of films that he does. But in this movie, that's exactly what's happening on a regular basis through narration and performance, and he still gives us all the dramatic flair we've become accustomed, accustomed to seeing him do. That whole uh, famous speech, the uh, I'm not leaving, that, that whole shit, that speech, that's a great example of stuff we've seen before from him. That's the guy we know and love. Except, unlike before, it has this comedic flair that everything else on his resume does not have. The show goes on! This is my home! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here! They're gonna need to send in the National Guard a fucking SWAT team, cause I ain't going nowhere! I mean, he's played cocky and brash before. I mean, the movie he did before Wolf of Wall Street was the great fucking Gatsby, after all. But he's never played anything for laughs until this film. Jonah Hill is no slouch in the comedy department, if you didn't know that. And he's out here with fucking fake teeth and this wild-ass accent that I still can't even identify. And every scene, he's just ramping it up to level 10. And... DiCaprio is equal par. <laughs> There's one scene that thoroughly emphasizes that. And without going into super detail, because, you know, Wall Street crimes get really in detail in this film. The quick explanation of the setup is that Jordan Belfort, played by DiCaprio, and his firm are in this celebratory mood because they've successfully transferred money that they got illegally from acquiring the IPO of the Steve Madden Shoe Company account to a Swiss bank account. And there's a good chunk of this movie that builds up the tension on if that can happen or not because the FBI is on their balls. And because this movie is about celebrating with drugs, the only way these highly immoral people choose to celebrate such an illegal activity is for him and Donnie, well, assuming others are doing the same types of things, but this film focuses on him and Donnie, played by Jonah Hill, to take quaaludes. And not just any quaaludes. The Lemon 714 quaaludes. When it comes to quaaludes, the Lemon 714 was the holy grail. Can you believe it? Oh my God. 
I thought they were like a myth. Three times as powerful as anything available today. Look at these babies. Boy, Donnie really knew how to celebrate. Jordan has to drive a mile away from his house to a nearby country club to contact a private investigator, who then tells him that one of his associates is in jail, that his phones are tapped, and it's probably at his office and his house as well. And it is at this point where the magic begins to happen. After 15 years in storage, the lemons had developed a delayed fuse. It took 90 minutes for these little fuckers to kick in, but once they did, pow! I mean, I had skipped the tingle phase and went straight to the drool phase. These little bastards were so strong, I discovered a whole new phase, the cerebral palsy phase. He is completely unable to walk due to the mighty strength of the 714 Quaaludes. Yes, he has no choice but to make an attempt to get out of the hotel. He has to get down the front stairs of the hotel. He has to get into his car and drive away while tripping balls. And that process takes almost four minutes of screen time. Scorsese-type narration has never been used more effectively than in this scene. And I mean ever. I also want to say that I'm a big fan of Matthew McConaughey, too. That's important, not because he's in this movie, but because he won that Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club in the same year. And I've defended that a lot. I still think he deserved it. He lost the weight. He did the work. And his work is great. But I tend to stay silent when people say that DiCaprio got robbed. It's a tough thing for me to debate in my mind. Even now. Should have just tied. You can have a tie in the Oscars, I think. Maybe. Number two. Toy Story 3, 2010. I recently asked a friend of mine his opinion on what the greatest war movie was. He mentioned a couple of standards, you know, Platoon, Private Ryan, blah, blah, blah. But one movie he mentioned incessantly was a movie called Grave of the Fireflies. Well, the war movie from 1988 that Studio Ghibli had made about World War II. Grave of the Fireflies is a movie very, very famous for being sad. Very famous for being how sad it is from just beginning to end, pillar to post, brutally sad. It is so sad that I, as a person who's seen it, can suggest possibly none of you ever seeing this movie taking my word for it, and living your life in peace. Disney was always the counterbalance to films like Grave of the Fireflies. Like, they were supposed to be the movies where your mind just took a vacation from all of the hard drama <laughs> that an adult would consume, whether it be on television or film. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that at one point the idea for Disney was to leave all of the serious dramatic animated stuff overseas. Leave the, the Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy stuff to us. Why not? It's not like those movies advertise themselves to be dramas anyway, right? I mean, you know, outside of The Lion King, okay, which had its moments, Disney had a long track record of uplifting spirits. And even with The Lion King, there was a lot more triumph and happiness than tragedy. Then, sometime in, I would say, the late 
2000s, maybe, I'm going to guess around 2006. Some genius slash nefarious executive at Disney had the idea to just start going rogue from the rest of the Disney resume. And they just started making movies that would fuck with the emotions of the adults that watched them rather than the children. I would say this led to a trifecta of movies with so much emotional weight attached to them that it would completely change the reputation of the company. Well, maybe not Disney, but Pixar indefinitely. WALL-E, for example, that was the first one. That wasn't a necessarily a, uh, an emotionally devastating movie, I guess, but it's more the pregame as to what was to come later. Sure, it's a really great love story, and I think it's one of the top two or three movies of that entire decade, honestly. But amidst that love story and all that greatness comes these little tidbits about overpowering loneliness, environmental neglect, and like a Disney-ish version of what the apocalypse would look like. Seriously. The next year was 2009, and Up came out in 2009. And that montage from Up came out in 2009. You know what montage I'm talking about. Like, I don't even have to explain to folks what this montage is. All I gotta say are the words Up and Pixar movie, and motherfuckers pretty much know what it is I'm talking about. And then the year after that comes up, and we're at Toy Story 3. And after all this time, I've come to the conclusion that Toy Story 3 is a happy movie, but just barely. <laughs> like, there are moments in which this movie puts Grave of the Fireflies on its heels as the saddest movie ever fucking made. It is ultimately a movie about losing the innocence of childhood. And if you've ever had a prized possession as a child that you've misplaced forever, or if you've come to long for the days of your childhood innocence because of wherever your life has taken you, th then this is not the fucking movie for you, bro. You need to, you need to fall back. I, I saw this movie twice in theaters, and in both cases, I've never seen so many grown-up adults openly weep. I, I mean... This, yeah, this one and Passion of the Christ. Like, those are the two. Seriously. Oh, the, the backstories, man. The backstory of the main villain, Lotso, is that he loved a little girl so much that bought him from the store that he ended up going bad, breaking bad, say, because he got left at a truck stop and then she ended up buying another Lotso bear and he made it all the way back to her house and saw her playing with the Lotso bear and he went crazy. There's that beginning sequence where the main character, not the main character, but the human character, Andy, grows up and he stops playing with his toys naturally. And then he locks him in the attic to be just banished forever. <laughs> That's just fucking heavy. And then the ending sequence of the toy saying goodbye to a now teenaged Andy as he passes them off to the new owner. And then it leads to that moment where Woody looks at Andy's car driving away and he's like, so long, partner. And then the film fades to black. Fucking 
brutality on the emotions, man. But for my money, <laughs> nothing previously mentioned, perhaps nothing in the entire decade of cinema in the 2010s equals the near traumatizing devastation that is that goddamn incinerator scene. Woody, look, I can see daylight. We're going to be okay. <laughs> I don't think that's daylight. Run! The setup is kind of long, so bear with me here. Woody, Buzz, and the rest of the toys are beefing with Lotso, the head of the evil toys, at the daycare. They attempt to escape. Uh, Lotso tries to send them to a landfill, but... Everybody ends up in the landfill because he can't pull that off. They're trying to escape the landfill, and then Lotso, because he's evil, sees an opportunity, gain the upper hand on everybody, and he traps the rest of the toys on a conveyor belt, and that heads straight for an incinerator. And once they get inside of the incinerator, well, not next to the flame, but inside the place where all the trash burns up, They've set up the absolute absence of escape or hope for everybody. The toys themselves start holding hands and they start nodding to each other, silently accepting what would be a very horrifying death. And then they're saved. That claw coming from the sky to save them was really unexpected, and it's one of the more relieving <laughs> moments I've had in a movie theater possibly ever. It's peak drama. Like, it's the perfect buildup. Like, it's damn near Shakespearean. And it's Pixar. For my money, there's not a better individual dramatic scene in a film in this entire decade. I mean, there are some things that come really close. There may be even some things that are equal that I'm not thinking of, but nothing really better. Number one, Avengers Infinity War 2018. And the reason why that Toy Story incinerator scene is the silver medal is because although there's not a better dramatic scene in all the film in the last decade, there are more important ones. Ones that mean so much to pop culture and the landscape of pop culture that it can't help but to be the definitive moment of cinema of the past decade, and that's unquestionably the snap. Like, the aftermath of the snap has to solidify Thanos as one of the more, I don't know, top two or three, three or four villains in cinematic history. I don't really need to explain the setup all that much because everybody on earth has seen this movie but for the sake of posterity i will put it as simplistically as i can the avengers are fighting thanos's army on wakanda they are fucking up royally hawkeye ain't even there at all somehow thanos's goons got the jump on vision and all of his people made him ineffective Suri is not able to get the Mind Stone out of Vision's head in time for anybody to use it effectively, and for some inexplicable reason, the Hulk has chosen not to fight in the Battle of Wakanda alongside the Avengers, making Bruce Banner use that weak-ass Hulkbuster armor. They're fighting at maybe 60% capacity, because Stark, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Drax, 
Star-Lord, Mantis, and Nebula are on Titan. They're fighting Thanos in person, and in doing so, they are fucking up even more royally than the Avengers are on Wakanda, and particularly Star-Lord. He's really, really fucking up. Thor, Rocket, and Groot arrive super late to Wakanda with Thor's new weapon. Thor goes head up with Thanos and seemingly critically wounds him, but Thanos has all the stones, you know? He politely informs Thor that he should have probably gone for the head. And then I think everybody knows what happens next. He did exactly what he said he was gonna do. Thanos wiped out 50% of all living creatures. The thing that follows next is Thanos chilling on a planet, peacefully basking in his victory, and then that movie cuts to credits. You see those credits, and the first thing that I'm pretty sure that everybody in that theater thought the same as I was that we're not getting any resolution to this ending for the next calendar year. I mean, outside of the ending of the Ant-Man movie, which was basically the same thing, except Ant-Man is in the, the van time machine thingy and he survives. Anyway, it was in this year that I came to realize one thing. This is the definitive pop culture cinematic moment of this decade and possibly this generation. But what about Endgame? That Avengers Assemble moment where all of them are lined up ready to fight Thanos. That moment where it's on your left, like it all looks lost and he suddenly hears Falcon say on your left and everybody starts showing up. That's a really good one. Cap grabbing Thor's hammer. That's a really good one. Uh, the final time that Tony Stark says, I am Iron Man. And he has that Butch and Sundance moment where he snaps his finger. That's a good one, too. What about those people tell me? What about that? Have you seen this? Have you seen the YouTube clip where all those audience responses from around the world happen and they're all just going crazy like it's some fucking Lakers game? Isn't that superior? Well, about that. Yes, those individual moments in that 27 minute sequence are very awesome. But there was also a lot of flaws in that finale and pretty much that whole movie as well. It's not a perfect sequence, not by any means. It just seems that way. The snap though, is the definitive moment of the MCU, even now. Thanos had been built up to be the supervillain of supervillains since the first Avengers in 2012. He's mentioned all throughout Guardians of the Galaxy in both films. Hell, he's the main character of Infinity War. And one would think that if you're going to have all that buildup, then you need to pay it off. A truly great scene is about setup to execution and nothing in the fucking world prepared audiences for the end of Infinity War. Usually films like that end on a cliffhanger, I'll give you that, but the bad guy like loses and then he 
scurries away to fight another day. He doesn't die. You know, the roll credits from there. We'll see you again. But not this. This was a humongous win from a villain who actually was built up to earn it. This one stung the audience a lot. Like, giving Spider-Man that deathbed monologue while Tony cried over him and having Groot calling out to Rocket as he vaporized, like seeing Scarlet Witch vaporize, holding the dead body of Vision, all that shit happened, too. Like, the scene's reactions from audiences around the world aren't just as amazing as the really hyped in-game responses because it's just silence. Like, somebody always says, like, what the fuck? And you can hear it really audibly, but that's pretty much the sentiment of the people. As a result of this scene, the word Thanos became a verb. A verb that was regularly used in sports commentary and analysis, for example. Like whenever a boxer got knocked the fuck out, whenever somebody got dunked on, like whenever somebody hit a home run that went to the upper deck, whenever a quarterback got like obliterated by a defensive lineman or a linebacker, more than likely, there was a verb to describe such moments for about a year and a half. I mean, to this day, right? To say something got thanos I'm pretty sure you know exactly what the fuck that means. And so do I. I wasn't around for Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader told Luke who his pops was. I wasn't there to see James Bond shoot at the opening screen for the first time. I wasn't there when, when Jaws popped out of the water for the first time. I was barely there for any of the Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford stuff, but I know how important those moments are, and I know the impact that they've had over time, and I know what it was like to be in a theater experiencing the audience reaction to every single one of those Avengers burning to dust, the dead silence of seeing Thanos bask in his victory, <laughs> and the collectible <laughs> the collectible groan of that audience when they got hit with them credits. I mean, not to sound corny, right? But it's the kind of stuff that resonates generationally. And more so than any other scene in any other film in the past 10 years, the snap of Thanos will resonate the most within pop culture. And I don't know how there's an argument to that. A new year is coming, and I still remain very optimistic that at some particular point in the spring, we'll see something. I mean, L.A. is worse than everywhere else. All the trades keep telling me that L.A. is pretty much going to be in last place when it comes to, you know, public things opening like movie theaters and whatnot. I mean, maybe Ventura County and Orange County open up soon, but I'm not sure. Optimism's all I have. So, I guess to anybody in this city who may hear this, just please be patient. Don't let motherfuckers make you think that streaming services are going to kill this theater business. It's not possible. When theaters do open, the enthusiasm to go back safely... Uh, I don't think we're considering what that may look like. It will be very glorious when that happens. 
like to thank good people at Third Wheel. The homie Rashad, engineer. Nice to see him back here. Thank you all very, very much for giving me your time. Thank you for listening. And you've made it to the next episode.